Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and her sidekick, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room with some truly wonderful folks that join us each week. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. It is a great chat room, but I don't think Andrea's my sidekick. She just cracks the whip and makes me work and keeps me organized, actually. So thank you, Andrea. I'm just pulling your leg there. Um, yeah, we have a wonderful chat room, a great group of people that's growing all the time, and they all contribute to the show as well. So there's a great deal to gain from attending. So do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. You very often will have your guests pop in and out of there as well. So, you know, when we go to breaks, the guest is there available sometimes to answer questions and you show videos. And and for those people who are not catching the show live, they should know that your chat room is still available. Now, they may not be able to participate in it, but they can see what conversation went on, what kinds of questions and the additive information that gets uh, discussed in that chat room. Is that correct? Yes, they can. And oftentimes, you know, if you're talking about an an URL, you know, a website they should go check, then we often put that up right in the chat room as well. So if you don't catch it on the air, you'll find it in the chat room. Good. All right. This week our spotlight is on tolerance. We all wish to be tolerant nowadays, but what are the limits, if any? I mean, it's completely unpopular, politically incorrect, and otherwise intolerable for someone to speak intolerant of some things today. The language we use may well constitute a crime. Indeed, if we're not careful about what we admit, we may find that the language we used 20, 30, 40, even 50 years ago, into the past, comes back to haunt us. As it did for Paula Dean, who was fired from the Food Network for what she said many, many years ago. Now think on this one, and it's not a hypothetical. The groom's friends threw a great party when he married his young bride. Now this is not a happy story, for the papers reported the next day that the bride had died. Quoting Reuters, On the wedding night, and after intercourse, she suffered from bleeding and uterine rupture, which caused her death. Close quote. You see, the bride was eight years old and her husband was 40. Now, this sort of thing occurs frequently in Yemen and other places in the world that share this ideology. Actually, if you Google the matter, you'll find that brides as young as five years of age are married off to much older men. According to one source, 39,000 underage girls marry older men every day. Now, in this country... What I have just described is among the most reprehensible and heinous of crimes. Pedophiles have no 
sanctuary. For when in prison, they must be isolated from the rest of the population or risk attack. And on the outside, they are tracked like dangerous animals. The sentence for a pedophile can be harsh because society holds this sort of behavior in absolute contempt. In one case, that of David Levy Greenberg, the sentence given by the court was 340 years. 17 years for each of the 20 counts he was convicted of. So my question, if you find this behavior objectionable, whenever and wherever it takes place, what are you doing about it? Should we be tolerant of it when it occurs in another country? Are you like most, shrugging it off with a, how awful? Well, there is little that we can do when something like this occurs in a faraway land. I mean, sure, we can donate treasure, time and money, or, you know, to causes that work to expose, to eliminate these practices. We can also speak out against them and those who sanction this activity. But there are many practices right here at home, perhaps in your own local neighborhood, which can be upsetting as well. One of my pretty bride's pet grievances is how animals are treated, particularly farm animals. I have seen her post on her Facebook page videos graphically portraying the manner in which animals are raised, fed, and then slaughtered, and no one plays the video. Now, if she posts some pretty this or that, everyone opens and plays the video. She has complained to me repeatedly about this observation. Why do people ignore the ugly stuff in the world, she has asked. Why do we? Is it tolerance? Is it some perverted form of spirituality, you know? Evil is an illusion. When we know how chickens are mistreated by McDonald's, why do we still buy their breakfast sandwich? When we discover that laws are being made to stop folks from filming what goes on in slaughter yards, why don't we speak up and protest this obstruction of our First Amendment rights? Why should it be a crime to capture film of inhuman practices? Perhaps next it will become a crime to catch the commission of a crime on film. If we do or say nothing, there are jurisdictions where it's illegal to film law enforcement. Now, I don't in any way mean to equate the abuse of children with animal rights. No, my point is all about the various issues that we can turn a blind eye to, at least according to the level of resistance that we're willing to bring to these issues. History should inform us that when people of good conscience ignore injustices, bad things happen. That said, as with those videos my bride posts on her Facebook page, people are aware of what goes on. They just don't want to see it. See no evil is the mantra. So some have unfriended her because they want to stay in their happy place. This sort of willful blindness went on for years while black people were treated worse than livestock, while Jewish people were tortured, exper experimented upon, and murdered, and so forth. And it will continue today unless the good people of the world do what they can to halt ill-dignified, inhuman, cruel behavior. 
My bride is a role model to me when it comes to matters of this nature. She will not eat eggs that our chickens have not laid. She goes out of her way to ensure that her makeup, her toiletries, and everything else are animal cruelty-free. I have spent hours and hours with her shopping for everything from small farm milk, and that's milk from farms that have maybe 10, you know, milk cows, not those that have 500 or so, to the garments she wears. If you find the way animals are treated as wrong, what do you do about it? If you find injustice in your community, what do you do about that? Here's my challenge. I would like you to think or find at least one activity in our society that you disapprove of this week and make an action plan to do what you can to make your voice heard, whatever your cause might be. Perhaps you begin by voting with your dollars and boycotting some industry, some product, some company, some practice. Perhaps you write letters of protest. Whatever you do, do something. Let your voice be heard. Write me and tell me what you did, what you object to. After all, silence is consent, albeit tacit. Tolerance, in my mind, is sometimes unacceptable. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, dear, that's a big one. I could go on. I could take your whole show on my thoughts on this well, don't one. Well, do so. that. We have a great guest today. So. <laughs> you do. I will try to be really brief. First of all, you give me way too much credit, you know. I try really hard to live consciously when it comes to animals, you know. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes I succeed. And when I succeed, I... I cheer myself up on that. I kind of see it, you know, as you think of the carbon footprint. Well, I think of it as the animal footprint, and I'm just trying to reduce my footprint. And you have been so helpful. You've even come out purse shopping for me, um, hunting through, because I didn't want to get a leather purse. I wanted to find a purse that would work. And you go scouring through everything for me and figure it all out. So that is really cool. But the fact is there are things that go on in the world that we are aware about and if it went on in front of us we would jump up and scream I mean if any of the people out there you know that have tuned into your show saw a cat being treated badly in the street you know kids throwing stones at it whatever they would all jump in they would do something that is 100% certain about that you would do something you don't allow that to happen we're aware of farming practices. You've told people before about the laws that have come out um, that prohibit people from filming slaughterhouses and, you know, the back end of all of this. So, I mean, everyone's aware of this. We know about battery hens, and we know that it's only getting worse and worse and worse. But everyone chooses not to pay any attention to it because it's a lot more convenient to get the cheap meat and grab the burger and eat what they want and throw away what they don't without thinking about the animal. I heard recently, did you know, chickens can count? Yes, yes, I did. I I, I think people would be amazed if they really paid attention to how intelligent chickens are. But that's very interesting. Okay, I... I am very helpful to you and supportive only because I truly, you know, believe that what you're doing is the right thing, and I, you are my role model there. So we should all find something that we can, you know, put our energy behind that will in some way make the world a better place. 
Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Professor Gabriel Erdogan, and we discussed her research and book, Rethinking Positive Thinking Inside the New Science of Motivation. Lydia wrote, I haven't written you before, but I couldn't resist telling you how much I enjoyed hearing the truth about how and when positive thinking fails. Thank you for such great programming. Anita wrote, I read her book, and it is really a powerful insight. I think your point about the obstacles and how sometimes they can seem to halt your dreams was well answered. Thank you. I can now get on with my plan. Richard commented she also researched pessimism. It is also very negatively correlated with creating a positive outcome. Her discovery is really that one has to imagine both the positive outcome desired and the obstacles one must address. She's talking about the same thing Carol Dweck does. Delusional positivity diminishes the subsequent effort expended. CB added, I guess the good news is that a person may get more introspection to their motivations until they are dealt with. One will not get much forward progress. R.K. wrote, It sounds to me like your internal desires need to be in line with your outward goals and then to put action behind it. Erica wrote, I just love your show and I was looking over your guest list. Wow, that's all I can say. We say that too sometimes, Erica. Vicky wrote, this is a fabulous two hours of Elda. My Wednesday, Wednesdays are going to be fabulous now. Janet wrote, dear Elda, dear Dr. Eldon, firstly, I love your shows and interviewing style. A big hello also to Ravinder. I was listening to your interview replay with Dr. Bender and was struck by the memory you spoke of regarding hawks swooping in and killing doves without eating them. I sensed that you felt anger toward the hawks. I am writing because I have something for you to consider that may mitigate the negative memory. Oftentimes, young hawks, while hunting for the first couple of times, do not know what to do with their quarry. They hit, hit and miss, hit and carry, hit, carry and drop, and so on. In a more wild setting, they may have returned, and also when quarry is dropped, young ground predators who are inexperienced, such as a fox, have a chance at what they think is killing and indeed finding their own catch without mama. Hope this helps you to see prey animals in a new light. Well, I understand their nature, Janet, and I do appreciate it, and I do admit to becoming angry over the whole thing, but I'm not angry now. It wasn't an anger that lasts. Sometimes our biology responds to our perception so instantly that it's our mind trying to figure out what happened. As William James once said, we see a bear run and are frightened, and in that order. I saw a hawk killing, ran to save my doves, and became angry. A warm thanks to you for your letter, Janet. Nora wrote, I heard on Eldon's show Provocative Enlightenment that there is a free MP3 download on forgiveness. Where do I get it? Good question, Nora. Just go to www.intertalk, one word, I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K dot com, and choose free programs from the left-hand navigation pane. Yule wrote, I have enjoyed your book, CDs, and work immensely. Carol wrote, love and share your works with my students. And JC wrote, dear Eldon, you have blessed me in so many ways. A simple thank you letter seems inadequate. 
I was first introduced to you from your radio show. Your book, Choices and Illusions, arrived over the holidays, and that time kept me from writing sooner. But I'm glad of that because now I've read it and I have many more treasures to thank you for. There are so many stories, so many ideas that both illuminate me and pique my curiosity. I'm reminded that the more we know, the more we realize there is to learn. I am no spiritual novice, but there is something about the way you communicate that makes me understand on a deeper level. Thank you so much. Well, JC, I am truly honored by your words. Thank you. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook, and I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, and I'm excited about this show, Higher Reality Therapy, Nine Pathways to Inner Peace with Professor Anthony Falakowski. Dr. Falakowski is an internationally published author, workshop leader, and professor at Sheridan College in Oakville, Ontario, Canada. A graduate of the University of Toronto, he has taught courses in psychology, philosophy, and human relations for over the past three decades. His textbooks have been used by tens of thousands of students in North America and abroad. Professor Falakowski is particularly interested in the therapeutic value of philosophical wisdom and ego psychology as described in Enneagram Theory and A Course in Miracles. In his words, and I quote a few years ago, when very involved with Enneagram and readings from A Course in Miracles, I was contemplating writing a new critical thinking textbook. It was at that time that a nagging little inner voice kept interrupting and telling me to write a self-help book based on those spiritual principles I was studying, and that if I didn't, I would be nagged for the rest of my life. I felt that this inner voice experience was no more than some sort of delusion of grandeur. Brought on by my knowledge of how A Course in Miracles came to fruition, as a inspired and dictated book. My protestations did not silence the inner voice, however. Long story short, to rid myself of that annoyance, I wrote Higher Reality Therapy, Nine Pathways to Inner Peace. Close quote. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Anthony Falakowski. Uh, and I'm excited <laughs> about our conversation. I've, I've listened to you before, and uh, you have uh, a very gentle, deep way of, uh, of asking probing questions and uh, taking people into, uh, into interesting areas and directions. So anyway, I'm happy to be here talking with you. Oh, well, thank you. I'm honored by that. And I must tell you, right out the get-go, I really enjoyed your book. In fact, my, my pretty bride would tell you that I've been going on about it for the last, for, well, all week long. But okay, on this show, we like to know who is the messenger, what is the message, and how do we use it. So to begin, please tell us about yourself. Where were you raised? What was your childhood like? Were you popular in school? What were your worst subjects in high school? And when you look back, how do you see yourself as a teenager? 
Okay, well, let me see. Uh, it seems uh, I probably need to bring a violin in <laughs> at this point, <laughs> but uh, I'll try to dispense with that uh, part. Well, I was born in, uh, and raised in Brantford, Ontario. Uh, you might know Brantford as uh, the hometown of uh, Wayne Gretzky, so I'll drop a name there. Um, I'm a first-generation Canadian. Uh, my, my parents uh, are from Europe, Poland, and Lithuania in particular. Um, I have uh, a brother and sister who are uh, twins. Uh, I have an old, uh, and they're, I guess, seven years my junior. I have a, I have a sister who is uh, six years my senior. Um, I grew up in a household where English was not the first language. Uh, there was a little bit of ethnic warfare in the house uh, during the day when my uh, maternal grandfather was around and my maternal grandmother, they'd be speaking Lithuanian to my mother, and then in the evening, um, everybody would be speaking Polish. And I really didn't understand either either language very well. <laughs> I was speaking more English during the day. But uh, mm-hmm. in any event, uh, things uh, were sort of sad for me at the beginning. Uh, you know, prior to, uh, you know, the current situation when, you know, divorce and separation is rather a common occurrence, uh, my parents uh, separated and ultimately divorced when I was relatively young. That left my mother with uh, the twins, who are, I'm trying to remember their exact age, around two or so, looking after them. And my uh, older sister was somewhat of a rebellious type, and I guess she left home fairly early. So that left me kind of in the middle there. Uh, And uh, I had to tend to myself uh, to a very large extent. Well, once my parents separated, uh, it became estranged, actually, from my father. I hadn't seen him or didn't see him until I went to his funeral as about... 30, 35 years, so uh, it was kind of a, a tough time in the early days. Uh, so it was a broken home, and my mother was collecting government assistance, and uh, so the times were tough, and uh, economically, financially, and uh, and I found myself uh, kind of a sort of a, a loner, you know, in that circumstance. You know, I, I went to school and, uh, you know, started primary school, I, I probably shaped like a pear, <laughs> uh, wasn't very coordinated, really. Uh, and so I kind of spent a lot of time by myself. Actually, in the, in sort of between the ages of what was it? I guess five, five and eight. We actually were living out on a farm for for a bit. My dad had a business uh, uh, out on the highway where we lived on the highway out in the farmlands, and uh, we had a couple of cows and uh, corn in the back. And uh, so I used to spend a lot of time picking corn, uh, feeding the pigs. Uh, you know, do, I never learned how to milk a cow properly, so I, I, <laughs> I couldn't do that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, there was a lot of solitary time there. And when I got back, it was sort of interesting when uh, I always felt like everybody does, you know, somewhat like a, a bit of an observer, an outsider. Everybody feels that way. But for me, it was kind of a mode of being. And when we left to live in the country and then returned back to the city, it's like everybody had developed, you know, sort of in terms of their maturity and cognitive growth a couple of years. And it, it's as if I stagnated, didn't grow. So I really felt like a stranger and an outsider in that, in that case. And uh, what happened was I, I developed this incredible curiosity for, you know, why things were the way that they were. Everybody else seemed to have a normal family life. That wasn't exactly the case uh, for me, and, you know, I started questioning, uh, you know, matters of fairness, and, and like, I think everybody does this. Uh, everybody becomes a victim in their own mind. You know, life is unfair. The world is unfair. But uh, that 
that kind of feeling and those kinds of perceptions uh, started me on this quest uh, for understanding. And that led to studies in psychology and philosophy. And, and, and I found solace and I found comfort. Uh, I found direction. Uh, I found joy. Um, uh, I found much in learning. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I've been a student of life, uh, you know, since I can remember. In high school, I, I had a rather unfortunate nickname. Uh, if I wasn't being called uh, Fat Albert, uh, right. my, other my other nickname Pro was uh, Professor, I'm going to have you. I'm going to have you hold it right there, and I want to know that nickname when we come back, but I don't want the sure. computers to kick us out either, and we've got a hard break coming up. We're oh, speaking okay. with Professor Anthony Falakowski about his life, work, and book, Higher Reality Therapy, Nine Pathways to Inner Peace. You're going to want to read it. You can learn more about him by visiting Falakowski, that's F-A-L-I-K-O-W-S-K-I dot com. Remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. better find somebody to love. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Anthony Falakowski about his life, work, and book, Higher Reality Therapy, Nine Pathways to Inner Peace. 
it, this is a great read, and it's a great read for everyone out there, whether you're interested in a spiritual development or you're just interested in a practical way of living a better life. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some truly special significance or real meaning to them. Music impacts us all in many ways. It can awaken memories. It has restored consciousness to coma patients. Music affects our attention, memory, performance, and our choice in music has been linked to the big five personality traits. Openness to experience, agreeableness, extroversion, neuroticism, and conscientiousness. So there is a good deal of self-disclosure present in the selection of one's favorite music. Okay, we just played Jefferson Airplane, Somebody to Love. Why is this one special to you, Professor, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, actually, the song serves as a great segue to sort of, uh, I suppose, my adolescent years and early adult years, insofar as I have a, an interesting relationship with music. Um, I rarely pay attention to the lyrics. Uh, in this case, uh, or what I'll do is I'll listen to some of the lyrics. And, uh, and I guess the, the first verse, you know, when the truth is found to be lie, uh, lies and all the joy within you dies, don't you want somebody to love? I've always uh, been fascinated by sort of appearance versus truth and what's in behind. One of the things I, I didn't mention earlier is I was an altar boy as a kid. I was always looking in the tabernacle, <laughs> trying to figure mm-hmm. out where God is in the tabernacle. Okay. Uh, and, and so I've always been a seeker of truth. And, and I found when there have been moments of uh, deception uh, or disloyalty or anything like that, uh, and that joy dies, um, there's a certain openness that happens to love and a certain understanding that, that, that comes out of that deception or disloyalty or whatever it might be. Uh, but uh, what I was going to say is, uh, you know, being a product of the times, you know, I, I went through the 60s and the 70s. Um, you know, I used to experience it, you know, even, even when I was, you know, just sitting by myself at my desk, you know, some kind of Dionysian rapture where, you know, sometimes I'd hear the lyrics, other times I would just become so absorbed in by the music. I, I mean, I would literally be the music. I guess the closest sort of experience of this would be, you know, people today like to wear headphones or earbuds and they listen to music. If you close your eyes, there's really a miraculous thing that happens. And, and what that is is that music tends to locate itself in different regions of your mind. <laughs> Uh, right. And it's even possible to have certain synesthetic experiences. But my point is, that's what music was to me. And there's kind of a plaintive cry in Jefferson Airplane, in the voice. Uh, um, and, and there's just something in, in, the, in the melody, in the guitar riffs, in the drums. It just, it just is powerful to me uh, in a strange way. And, uh, and rock and roll music actually has always had that effect and still does today. Interesting. Uh, I love it when a psychologist explains why they choose a piece of music, because they spend enough time on it to really have some reflection in it. Um, 
let me let me ask you this. You were about to tell me what your nickname was before we went to break. I, I've got to pick that one up. I can't leave oh, that well, one. Well, I had a, I had a couple. You know, in grade nine, my nickname was Fat Albert, and uh, later on, I think in my final year of high school, my nickname became Sigmund Fraud. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and I and I don't think it's because I was uh, you know trying to impress people with my you know with my psychoanalytic knowledge, but people would often see me sitting around in libraries reading you know uh, Freud's introductory lectures and so forth, <laughs> and uh, people just thought I was a little weird because I was you know heavily into psychology and and basically I lived and breathed uh, you know technical texts from Freud and Jung and others, and so I, I had that nickname. <laughs> You know, you, you, we can laugh at that now, and I'm glad you can laugh at that. That shows, you know, maturity and, and, and the healing. But it, it was probably very painful at the time. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I certainly was not, uh, you know, uh, one of the popular kids. Uh, and, you know, I guess nicknames like that, you know, were, uh, I don't know whether they were intended to be hurtful. They were to, to some extent, but strangely enough, uh, in time, uh, I took some pride in the Sigmund Freud, at least, and not so much the Fat Albert. Uh, but because uh, I, I truly had a love for psychology, and if, if people were associating me with Freud, I thought, oh, my God, well, that, that's kind of a good thing, even if they're doing it in kind of a, a cynical way. I, you know, who cares? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I'm reading about psychosexual stages of development. You know, that's more important. All right. Well, I'm going to jump into your work here at a point, but not just yet. Still, later in the show, our audience will learn that you are convinced that there is both a higher and a lower reality. And in the lower reality, in your words, and I quote, people are hurt and disappointed, expectations are not met, and there's always uncertainty of tomorrow, close quote. You heard today's spotlight and my remarks regarding the abuses and injustices in the world. You know, obviously this is lower reality and this schematization, but then what are we to do with regard to matters of this sort in your view, Professor? Well, let me preface my remarks first by saying something that I find somewhat disturbing in some spiritual communities is uh, the willingness to disengage from this empirical world. And people are kind of addicted to some kind of bliss, you know, that you know, some sort of positive bliss that they, they find in, you know, concepts like oneness and so forth. Um, at least as I, under, you know, I can always speak for myself and in, in my understanding of, yet yeah, A Course in Miracles and other things, that that would be irresponsible. Uh, you know, to disengage in this fashion. What you need to do is to, in fact, kind of almost ask, you know, for inner guidance. Uh, There's a way of of doing this. Uh, You know, looking at a situation and asking, what would love demand here? Uh, How can I extend love in this situation for the betterment of everyone? So, at one level, there is an unreality. Uh, you know, who was it? Uh, it could have been Buddha, in fact, who talked about this reality is, you know, is about as permanent as a bubble on a babbling brook. You know, here one moment and gone the next. Um, and so you can, you can be easily dismissive. Well, none of this matters. 
Uh, but I think that would miss the point. It's like, how do, how do I express uh, my, my spiritual being in this world, in this situation, with this individual? Uh, and so I guess extending love is, is, is the way to do that. Uh, and, you know, every situation will demand a different kind of action. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, um, you know, well, let me, ha- you, ahead, you set this up pretty good. Let me ask you this then, because, you know, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I loved your work and I love it even more hearing what you just said, because I, I have taken great exception to that. But much of your work is based on the Course in Miracle, and I say I've taken great exception, I better clarify that, great exception to those who disengage from the world, as you, you called it. Yeah. Okay, so much of your work is based on the Course in Miracles, and we'll get into that shortly, but one of the criticisms often leveled at the basic teaching, that of this is an illusion, you know, the table's not real, the house is not real, the chair is not real, etc., is that this sort of denial works for some since it provides a safe form of escapism. One doesn't have to recognize the horrors in the world because they simply aren't real. Now, I'm sure you've considered this possibility. Maybe you've encountered folks in, in this marginal area of spirituality that you alluded to. My question to you, sir, is... Is an escape? Is this an escape me- mechanism in the name of spirituality to some? Yeah, I mean, I've, here's an expression I don't think I've ever used in my life, so I'll use it for the first time now: spiritual bad faith. <laughs> oh. And the, the bad faith, let's say, is an existential term of you know self-deception. Yeah. yeah. And so, so we have a, a form of you know existential spiritual bad faith which relieves people of responsibility. And I, and I think it provides, it can provide a rationalization uh, for keeping the peace. I think some people are, addi- you know, are addicted to inner peace. It's a wonderful thing, uh, inner peace. But if it's going to uh, allow people to continue to be hurt or allow, allow for injustice to continue, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that's not good. I mean, while we're in this world... Uh, we don't have to be entirely worldly and materialistic. However, we do have to operate in it. Uh, and if, if our actions and uh, decisions and judgments are informed by higher order values, uh, by essential values, and, you know, then, then I think we can do good in the world. Uh, it, to sit back and say, well, this is all going to pass and it doesn't matter, uh, I, I think that that's a sleazy cop-out. All right. I, 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 I'm I love not, it. If I may say, you know, I, in a way, I, I feel in some in some respects, you know, uncomfortable talking about spirituality. Insofar as, you know, most people I know are so sweet, you know, and uh, kind and loving, and you know, both in their, you know, in the tone of their voice and in the content of what they say and in their behavior and so on. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like a, a Nietzschean spiritualist, you know, where I want to do spirituality <laughs> with a hammer. <laughs> and in fact. I love the name of your program, Provocative Enlightenment. I mean, this is not a feel-good thing. I'm going to provoke you. <laughs> I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to be in your face. I'm going to be doing a philosophy with a hammer. Another thing that Nietzsche said that I love, he said, philosophy is like taking a cold shower. You get in, you get cleansed, and you get out. You know, there's, there's kind of a confrontative 
a provocation, and in a strange way, that's me and my style. <laughs> and, and I'm going to have to come up to Canada and take classes from you. I can tell that right now. <laughs> Listen. Uh, Go ahead. So, so for me, to engage in the world means I need to get in the face of my students. Uh, you know, and for, you know, to give you just a, here's a, well, not a silly example, but a, a, a very current example, you may or may not have heard about a tunnel being dug just outside of a tennis facility near York University in Toronto. Anyway, there's all kinds of questions about who'd be digging this tunnel. The Pan Am Games are coming to Toronto. So, you know, there's fears that, uh, you know, this could be terrorist uh, created or who knows what. Anyway, uh, you know, I was confronting my students, Can you, you know, asking them to get their noses out of their cell phones and, uh, you know, listen to the news. <laughs> none, none of my students knew that, that this tunnel was being dug or had been dug. And, uh, uh, and Doug, is that the verb? Dig, dug? Anyway, yeah. uh, they, they did not know. And, and I thought, my goodness, you know, we need to engage here. Uh, and, uh, well, anyway, so I, I see my, my role, you know, to, to the extent I'm a messenger from Zeus, is to upset, irritate, uh, be that Socratic gadfly, be in the face of students. Um, and, and so I enjoy doing that. <laughs> That's I my way it. of engaging. I love it. Sophia. Okay, listen, let's just go there. Philosophy. That was your passion. That's what you began to teach. That's what your um, textbook, uh, well, maybe you have more than one textbook, but uh, I have your textbook here. It's on philosophy. Um, tell us about the marriage of philosophy, psychology, maybe even you know a little bit about the American Philosophical Practitioners Association so our audience understands why these two merge and are as important as they are. In fact, I think, you know, the next step in in uh, mental health care. Wow, uh, that's a, boy, that's a, a difficult uh, question to answer. But let, let me begin by saying that at one time there was only one discipline of study, and that was philosophy. And then, you know, economics branched off and uh, psychology branched off, as did sociology, et cetera, physics. Um, and so the, the kinds of concerns that, uh, you know, philosophers have, you know, they are, even today, uh, psychological. I mean, within philosophy departments, uh, you, you know, you have psychologists in there doing all philosophy of mind and other kinds of things like that. Um, the, the questions are so overlapping. Like, I'm thinking right now uh, about a paper I wrote uh, a couple of years ago, and it, it, it had in the title something about uh, psychological hegemony and the idea that psychologists, not all psychologists, and you know, maybe not formally or legally, but have at least uh, uh, the belief, many of them, that they, they have uh, what, uh, ownership to psychological difficulties and that there are problems. In fact, there are, like if someone's having a... Uh, uh, they're questioning their own religious belief system, that becomes a, uh, uh, something that clinical psychologists are now dealing with. Uh, if someone's having or uh, experiencing existential angst, you know, there's prob probably some DSM category that's going to be handling that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there are some things, you know, psychosis, schizophrenia, uh, biochemical problems that no doubt should 
stay uh, in the world of psychology and psychiatry. But when it comes to anxiety and meaning and high-order values and uh, sort of uh, disturbances of the mind that come from meaninglessness, let's say, or, uh, you know, uh, moral dilemmas, uh, I think philosophy has, has a role to play there. There's, there. there's wisdom to be had. You know, I talked earlier about how I, I would sort of lapse into some Dionysian rapture listening to music. One of the things I, I discovered in studying philosophy is that I could read words. I could read the words of the Stoics, for instance, and immediately find peace. I would be stilled in my spot. And sometimes even brought to tears. The words would be so beautiful, the insights so deep, the applications so relevant. Um, I was moved by ideas, uh, and and I was healed by these ideas. And when I share these ideas that healed me with my students, I see in their faces that they are healed, that they that they they want and ask and search for more. And what, what I say on behalf of the philosophers makes a difference to them. And when it makes a difference to them, it heals me. Teach what you would learn. <laughs> That's a saying from A Course in Miracles. And, it is. And, uh, and uh, when I teach what I would learn and, and I see the impact, it's fantastic. Let, let me give you a real-life uh, uh, story. I bumped into one of my Please. students a while back. And uh, she told me that uh, a coverage of Immanuel Kant saved her life. And I, saved your life, how's that? Well, I was covering Immanuel Kant and his notion of respect for persons, that we have to respect others and we have to respect ourselves, and we have a duty to do this. Right. And this student had, was living a horrible lifestyle, drugs and alcohol. She was, you know, living in a garage, you know, <laughs> cooking with a propane burner. And, uh, and she was, you know, just, you know, inches from suicide and all sorts of self-destructive other behaviors. And uh, she decided to enroll in one class at college, at Sheridan College, and that was my class, just coincidentally. And, uh, and it was yeah. a philosophy class. As if it's coincidental, right? And, and, and I covered Kant, and she told me that that saved her life. <laughs> I thought, my goodness, covering Kant's notion of respect for persons saved the life of somebody. Uh, yeah, wow. but why shouldn't it when you think about it? And that's the great validity, in my view, to philosophy. It is as relevant today as it has ever been, and it is the master discipline. You know, you, as you said, you uh, you begin to develop a field, and it could be a hard field like chemistry or physics. And when you get to a point where you have refined it sufficiently that it can become an independent discipline, it breaks away from philosophy but it all begins there and i think understanding human psychology all the great psychologists have of course referred to it um i would like you to give us an example of a stoic passage that stopped you that quieted your mind that gave you peace oh wow uh i should go to my library <laughs> and and find that well there i mean there, there's, there's just a short passage that, you know, often uh, I repeat to myself, and that is, external things touch not the soul, not in the slightest degree. And uh, there, 
in those words, I find freedom, uh, regardless of what is happening around me. External things touch not the soul. Um, and so I am always free, and I can choose what my response will be, and I can take responsibility for that response. No one can make me mad, glad, sad. Uh, people can, you know, I mean, somebody could twist your arm. <laughs> uh, but I, I believe it was Epictetus, who, uh, a slave, yeah. who once, when he was being tortured, uh, said something to this effect. I was never, I was never freer than when I was on the rack, when, you know, when he was being tortured. Uh, even then, you know, it's like, I guess Epictetus, without, you know, you might have been saying, nah, 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 yeah, you can break my leg. <laughs> even, even, even told his torture. If you keep doing that, you're going to break my leg, you know, you know that? And apparently his leg did break, and he said, see, I told you. Yeah. <laughs> and you see, if you ever, if you ever reach that level of stoic detachment, you're free. Yeah, you truly are. I thought you would go to Marcus Aurelius, but I, I love that one. That's good. Okay, listen, we've got another break coming up, but when we come back from the break, I, I, I want to know this. You begin your philosophy textbook, Experiencing Philosophy, which, by the way, is a great book and is available on Amazon to everybody out there. The title is Experiencing Philosophy, with a quote from St. Teresa of Avila. And you equate her reference to heaven, something I'm quite sure you believe to be a place, uh, you know, she believed to be a place, I should say, um, with enlightenment. So do you think enlightenment is heaven? And more importantly, is enlightenment necessarily a spiritual state? That's what your question is when we come back, Professor. If you would like to know more about Professor Anthony Falakowski and his work and book, visit his website at Falakowski, that's F-A-L-I-K-O-W-S-K-I dot com. Now, we have a video for you during the break explaining the traditional form of reality therapy as developed by Dr. William Glasser. We'll be getting into this in great detail in the next hour and how Professor Falakowski has combined this original idea. He's, it, it's been, he's done a great job in changing the idea and merging it with a Course in Miracles. If you're a Course in Miracles person, you're going to love this. If you're not, the practical aspect is something I truly appreciate. You can check it out by joining the chat room. That is, you can check out the video, provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. The praise for Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. 
Lindsay Wagner had this to say. Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Professor Anthony Falakowski about his life, work, and book, Higher Reality Therapy. You can learn more about him by visiting falakowski.com. That's F-A-L-I-K-O-W-S-K-I dot com. Now, Professor, we just played your second musical choice, The Birds Performing My Back Pages. So please tell us, why is this one special to you? Well, as I said before, you know, my way of listening to music was to sort of come in and out of consciousness almost, sort of once absorbed with the music, other times with just a few lyrics. Now, in this song, there are certain phrases that, you know, just resonate with me and and almost sear in my consciousness, using ideas as my maps. Um, I told you about my love of learning. Uh, as uh, as a youngster and in high school and university, and uh, ideas for me were not you know just things people played around with you know they had a greater use than you know intellectual masturbation. I mean ideas <laughs> can be used as maps. Uh, they're practical. Uh, they make a difference. So that would be an express. You know that, that, that's like a few words from the song that just kind of leapt out at me. And sort of, it, it was important to me, um, that, you know, talking, you know, just language, like the mongrel dogs who teach, mm-hmm. fearing not, I become my enemy in the instant that I preach. 
<laughs> there's there's something about Bob Dylan and uh, he, and the way he plays with words and puts them together, which you know just uh, it I, I I don't even know how to explain it. It, it just the words themselves, those few words like that, just excite me. And, and when I, I combine that with the, that plaintive uh, voice and, and the nature of that music, uh, for me, it's otherworldly. <laughs> uh, that sounds silly, perhaps. But, uh, no, it doesn't it, sound silly at all. We know that this is definitely one of those tunes that we need to have standing by. Um, God forbid that you ever need to be re-alerted from a... Um, uh, a state where we don't have full consciousness. We'll, we'll say it that way. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's great. I mean, you know, um, I think you're right about Dylan and the way he plays with words. Of course, you're right. But I mean, I agree with you. Uh, it, it, there's it's a very profound uh, set of lyrics, a very stirring uh, piece of music, and that's that's what music should do: stir us, should excite us. What do you think they play in heaven? Harps? <laughs> what, is, what do they play in heaven? Well, you know, you, you ask very difficult questions, I'll have you know. <laughs> <laughs> because I think prior to the break, you were asking me whether enlightenment is heaven. Or there, right. You know, I don't, and, you know, and, and while there was the positive, I was, I was given some thought to this. And, and, you know, what, do, what do I think about heaven? And, well, you know, there's, I can, you know, every time I'm asked questions like this from people like you, I, I can give the glib, rehearsed answer uh, that would be disingenuous and probably a reflection of some sort of bad faith, or I can, I can give you my stumbling, inarticulate uh, escape route answer. Well, up for uh, the latter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll go for that one. Well, one thing uh, from... You know, at least in my worldview, heaven is not a place one goes to as you know a place of reward. Um, and so, if heaven's not a place out there somewhere one goes to when one dies, and what is it? And I'm reminded of a, a biblical passage: the kingdom of God, I guess, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Yep. And so, if if enlightenment. Uh, it, it involves a, a change of one's state of being, a, a, one, a change in one the way one exists in the world, then I guess heaven is on earth and heaven is within. You know, look not here, look not there, the kingdom of God is within you, you know. And uh, I guess that's what I would have to say uh, first off. And so is enlightenment heaven? Well, it's the, well, who knows, uh, you know, what comes after, um, if anything. Uh, but I think enlightenment is the, you know, what people think of as heaven. Enlightenment is the closest thing, uh, I suppose, in my mind, to, to that. Uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see till we pass <laughs> uh, to discover what, if anything, is on the other side. Okay, well, we're on this, and I have the opportunity to ask you some deeply personal questions. And I know some of your students are listening, and they're probably quite glad that they don't get. Well, in, in, in fact, I doubt it. Do you just do you, do you ever just give that here it is off the shelf canned answer in a classroom, or do you always speak candidly like this? Well, um, I try not to, no, in fact, you know, I'm thinking of the best classes that I teach. Uh, I never have prepared notes. 
That's great. Uh, if my pre- prepared notes uh, interfere with, uh, you know, with the process, I mean, not all my classes, but many of my classes, I, I've been through the material quite a number of times. And so, you know, essentially I know the structure of lectures and so forth. And, you know, there are moments that arise and things that happen on an ad hoc or spontaneous, in a spontaneous way, which I really think uh, adds a flavor and a drama and, uh, and uh, authenticity, uh, you know, in the moment. Uh, it's like even now as I'm speaking to you, I'm, I'm, I hadn't thought about saying this prior to speaking to you about it. And I think anything that I had thought about that you might ask would have been one of those kind of rehearsed answers, but you're not giving me the luxury of my rehearsed answers. <laughs> <laughs> so I thank you for that. <laughs> you're allowing me to be more genuine. Well, that's great. Okay, let's just go to that then. You know, a lot of professionals who risk stepping over into the world of spirituality in an academic environment also risk tenor, ostracism uh, from their, you know, um, peer group. Uh, what have you experienced? What, what have you found as a result of uh, incorporating spirituality within your, your teachings? Or are, are you protected under the umbrella of philosophy? Well, maybe that's part of it. To be honest, I've, off, I've always been surprised that uh, Sheridan College has allowed me now for probably a decade or more to teach a class uh, titled New Age Philosophy. And, uh, you know, I, I can't even remember the origins of the course and how it was laid out to begin with, uh, but uh, it seems to me this is, uh, you know, it, it's a fringe-type course, academically speaking, and, uh, you know, and I often warn my students <laughs> who enroll in the class, oh, by the way, you know, uh, this is not, uh, you know, this is not a, a course in sort of a, a legitimate academic philosophy. We're going into spiritual areas uh, and, uh, you know, and we, we get involved in things like classroom meditations and, you know, the certain self-analytical exercises. And uh, the students love it, uh, at least judging from what, what, they've told me in the past, and I get no resistance from uh, my college's administration, uh, and so I'm, you know, happily, <laughs> you know, going along Ooh. teaching all this stuff that, uh, you know, I probably could not teach at some other institution, so I, I feel uh, lucky to be able to do it. All right. I'm going to ask you a few questions now, just kind of a bang-bang if we can, because I do want to get into the depth of your work. But there are some things that I think, you know, are are worth fleshing out. The Course in Miracles is a dictated text. Um, I studied the Course in Miracles. I facilitated teaching uh, the material that was in the Course in Miracles uh, for quite some time. And one of the objections people have to the Course in Miracles, uh, aside from those we've already mentioned, the denial aspect, uh, is uh, Jesus. So in your view, did Jesus dictate this work? Wow. Um, well, it depends uh, what you mean by Jesus. Uh are we talking, as one of my students described Jesus, space Jesus, <laughs> cosmic Jesus, the historical Jesus? I'm going to let you cop out. You describe. You tell me what you believe, Professor. Okay, this is, this is what I believe. 
I mean, Watnick is pretty close to you, isn't he? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I attended uh, several of uh, Ken Watnick's uh, training sessions, and, you know, okay. and I read his okay. books and so, so on. So what do you believe, sir? I don't mean to cut you off. What do you believe? Yeah. I believe that there are... That, that there is, there are things in the universe. Uh, who knows? Forms of, like I have to use language to describe something that may be beyond language. You know, sort of uh, uh, forces of intelligence that take on form. I'm reminded of. I'm reminded of Star Trek. Maybe this is the, the way I can explain it. If you remember the, the old original Star Trek, sometimes there would be some force or entity that would come visit on the starship. And they would take human form, but they were pure energy. But right. for sake of communicating, would take on the semblance of human beings. Mm-hmm. So I think Jesus would be like one of these sort of entities in the universe, or this this power, this force, this intelligence. I don't even know what to call it. And 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 I, I, like when I read the course, the language is so profound. It is so beautiful. The insights are, are so stirring. Um, and someone claims that there's an otherworldly source to this. Um, uh, you know, I, I suspend my rational judgment, and I think that this may be the case. So how about a maybe to your answer, and the Jesus is not the Jesus of Nazareth, but essentially a, a, an intelligence in the universe. Okay, all right, that's that's fair enough. Then I'm going to ask you to distinguish this. Um, you mix Eastern and Western thought. Um, and you, you know, you've already cited Buddha, bubbles in the stream. Uh, and you do that, uh, you, you have some marvelous quotes indeed from both Eastern and Western thought throughout your book. Uh, seasoning, I think of it, because you can stop on almost any page and it has a special seasoning or flavor to it. Uh, so here's my question. Buddhism is essentially atheism, or it's atheistic, I should say. And of course, Jesus, um, through however you understand, uh, Jesus, whatever form, etc., cetera, uh, is, is not atheist. It, it, this is a, this is a, a teaching that has a, an eternal life to it and has a creator. How do you uh, how do you sparse that one out? Parse that one out. Well, you know, um, I don't know that I, I agree with you actually, because uh, in in God, a creator God is not the God of a course of miracles, at least as I understand it. Uh, in the in the metaphysics and sort of the ontology of the course, uh, strangely enough, this world, uh, you know, this lower reality, it does not exist that it's not separate from god that there is nothing to be created outside of god god is all so it's not like god's there and god creates but, something but over we here. exist professor it's kind of like the big bang you know in the beginning there was a singularity a singularity divide itself and we have everything that we see as an illusion well in the beginning there was only god and god reflected upon himself dividing himself and creating himself i you know i, I don't mean that as a he or a she you understand that yeah. uh, and so we you and i our listening audience are all a part of the body in the words of panentheism of god 
but nevertheless, we exist in any in a created eternal state by a creator, or we don't. And that's the question. Well, again, this is a, this is a tough one, because what you're asking me to do, and I don't know that, that I'm able to do this, there are, let's say, differences, um, and some of the differences may involve logical inconsistencies or incompatibilities between uh, one, uh, you know, one belief or thought system and another. So, in the case of Buddhism, um, you know, it, it is different. There isn't a creator god, but then I'm trying to dismiss the notion of a creator god. In fact, because there can't be a creator god because if the course is, you know, if I'm consistent with the course. This, your life, my life, this conversation is that bubble on the brook. And uh, it's while we're here, we have this, this sort of this, this dream that this is actually occurring. We're living in this dream. It seems to be very real. You and I are having this conversation. So there's, it seems to be that there's no denying that, that, that we're living a life. And, and by not denying this, we can't deny all of the horrible things that are going on, and we can't deny the fact that we should be responsible, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but... Um, I think that 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 intelligence, whatever that is, um, we are. I mean, we're not we're not separate from it. We're not created by it. I I, I know I'm probably going around in circles here, but I, I I don't know how to compare that with Buddhism or exactly what you wanted me to you know how you wanted okay. me to handle this. You know, I didn't want you to handle it in any particular way. I, You know, I have just so many, we, we could just call it, you know, those technical thoughts that, that are the outgrowth. So, for example, you accept channeling. Well, then what do you do about the channels like Rontha, Hilarion, Seth, Abraham, and, and others, including, you know, those who channel instructions to kill their sister-in-law? Um, a case that I worked on in Utah. You, you, you know, you have all this kind of, of material, uh, that, that is implicit to it. And I could, I'm afraid I could, I would, I would just love to climb inside your mind for the next couple of days. But what I do want to do at this point in time is get into your work because your book is an incredible book. And so what I'd like you to do now, if you will, professor, is give us some, clarification you're studying the course in miracles most of our audience now should have a flavor of that or knew about it we've actually hosted shows on it here in the past and and at the same time working with the neogram personality types or memes and how did you bring these together i mean please unpack for our audience what you did what what it was that you discovered and how the topology of uh, of enneagrams fit with the course in miracles if you would sir okay well uh, to begin with uh you know years and years ago now i i was browsing through a bookstore and i came across a book written by jerry jampolsky uh who uh you know Attitudinal Healing Center in Tiburon, yes, yes. Exactly, and, you know, Love is the Answer, and he had a number of books, and he kept referring to the ego, which I found interesting, given my interest in Freud, you know, prior to that. Um, and uh, anyway, he kept referencing this book, A Course in Miracles, 
And so that's how I learned about the course of Jerry Janpolsky, and I tried to get a, a hold of it. At that time, it wasn't published by anybody <laughs> or any uh, commercial publisher, and I ended up uh, contacting somebody in Ottawa who finally, you know, sent me this book. It was at a time when I was thinking about a New Age course. I was going to use Janpolsky's uh, works in my mm -hmm. New Age class. And uh, so I started reading about this and learned more about uh, the ego as, as, the, as the course understands that the, the ego is an illusion, uh, that, you know, you are not your ego, and to the extent you identify with the ego, you don't really know who you are. I think the chorus, there, there's a line somewhere in the chorus that goes something like this, no concept of yourself can replace the truth of who you really are. So that was, that was an intriguing notion. In fact, in that same bookstore, at the time I was, I was teaching at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, I used to kill some time prior to class, I would, uh, you know, browse in this particular bookstore, and I found another and it was written by uh, Don Riso, and it was entitled Personality Types. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it had a lot of ego psychology in it. And uh, there were different, uh, well, personality types uh, with different ego dynamics. And uh, so for me, it was kind of a natural uh, blend and a natural wedding. Well, there are these illusions. Um, now, the Enneagram uh, takes the personality or the ego personality in a slightly different way. A Course in Miracles says the ego is entirely an illusion. Uh, and in, in the Enneagram, the point is made that your personality, your ego personality, uh, is a tool, you know, and uh, it has to be observed. It has to be, you know, purified, if you will. Uh, there are ways of getting at certain uh, essential human qualities uh, there is work that can be done on this ego. You cannot remove it entirely. Uh, it is, in fact, it is. It has a certain usefulness to it, as long as it doesn't become uh, your master. And so, as I'm speaking here, it's one of those situations. Well, of course, in miracle says the you know the ego is completely an illusion, and uh, and the enneagram says uh, well. Not really. It can be an impediment uh, to enlightenment, but you know we're not going to we're not going to throw we're not going to throw it all in the garbage can. And so I have one of these kind of theoretical, conceptual, metaphysical inconsistencies between the two systems. So I guess you can call me an a la carte spiritualist here, <laughs> where you know I kind of cut and paste from different uh, from different areas. Now, if I'm if I'm completely true to one system, say. Uh, uh, a Course in Miracles, then I can't really accept all of what's in the Enneagram. Or if we go back to the origins of A Course in Miracles, but if I just say, well, listen, the, the Course has certain ideas, I find these ideas profoundly moving and useful, is there some way of adapting these ideas, uh, coordinating them, perhaps modifying them in such a fashion uh, that that would be good? There's a there, there's, a, there's a great line, and this goes back to my spiritual bad faith stuff. If you can just bear with me, I've got this wonderful uh, quotation that comes from A Course in Miracles. Sure. It says, and it's in a section on the dynamics of the ego, No one can escape illusions unless he looks at them, for not looking is the way they are protected. There is no need to shrink from illusions, for they cannot be dangerous. We are ready to look more closely at the ego's thought system because together we have the lamp that will dispel it. And since you realize you do not want it, you must be ready. Let us be very calm in doing this, for we are merely looking honestly for truth. 
the dynamics of the ego will be our lesson for a while, for we must look first at this to see beyond it, since you have made it real. We will undo this error quietly together and then look beyond it to truth. So that, that's a very stirring uh, passage for me, and I, and I think of you know many people in the Enneagram it's community who... It's a great passage <laughs> for us to go to break on, and we have one of those right now. Okay. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook, and or drop me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldontaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and it's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Hi, I'm Elton Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Professor Anthony Falakowski about his life, work, and book, Higher Reality Therapy, Nine Pathways to Inner Peace. In this half hour, we will take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. 
And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Professor, we just played Mavis Staples performing Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Uh, tell us, why is this one important to you? And again, how does it tell us about who you are? Well, the first thing you should note that, uh, given what I said earlier, I don't believe a Lord in the sky, <laughs> and I don't believe a, but, uh, in a heaven that I'm going to in that respect. Well, that's again. I, you know, I, I come back and I fumble and mumble when I try to explain that sort of the, the value and importance of these songs. This is a soulful song, sung by a soulful woman, who touches my heart. <laughs> the melody the voice and it makes me feel good uh and uh, in and so often when i'm listening to music it is it is the, the melody the rhythm the voice and all of that and uh, you know just just the refrain of the song you know uh, will the circle be unbroken i don't there's just something that touches my soul touches my heart makes me feel good and i smile and uh and that's it. <laughs> that's it. Nothing it, more. It, I have to ask you: Does it remind you at all of the good times back in you know uh, the tabernacle, the church, uh, when you were searching for God? Oh well, yeah. I mean, there. You know, I though I left the church, and you know, I don't practice any religion. I I, I do miss the the ritual, and I and I do miss. Uh, you know the mystery, and I and I do miss some. Uh, you know the songs. I, a few years ago, I was in Chicago, and I and I went to the House of Blues in Chicago for the Sunday mm-hmm. morning uh, brunch, and they had some gospel singers in there, and and you know gospel music next to blues <laughs> for me is it 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 it's the way I feel. Uh, you know I live in my head so much. Uh, the music is uh, the entry point to my heart, and. Uh, so when I when I see joyful people in uh, you know sort of in movement and dance on the stage, uh, you know celebrating and and, and uh, expressing gratitude and uh, enjoying life and doing it in a musical way, uh, I I am touched uh, and, and and so that that's my therapy uh, <laughs> is to listen to soulful music like that. It's one of my favorites too. Only I, I, I kind of like Johnny Cash's interpretation of it. <laughs> well, well, let me tell you, I, I, I've, uh, I have a personal CD that I that I play in my car, and I have three versions of this on the same CD. And the one is Mavis Staples. The other one is Johnny Cash is in it. I think he's with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And uh, there's somebody <laughs> else. Levon Helm is on that one. And I have a third version that's done by the band with Levon Helm. I, I love that song so much. It just uh, it makes me feel good. It is a great one, and it does do that. It reminds me. I mean, sometimes I think maybe some of your answers are coming out of my mouth, not out of your mouth, because <laughs> it, it reminds me of my my youth, and and I was very religious, and and I do. I'm not. I, I'm very spiritual. I would think today, but I'm not organized religion. I have you know departed from that. But like you, I do miss the ritual. I do miss. The mystique of it all. I I, I want to go to this. I love your explanation of the implied acceptance to causality. 
uh, our association with causality and our emotional reactions, positive and negative and so on. Uh, and a lot of people go through their lives, as you well know, living like a ping pong ball between mallets, um, cause and effect oriented. I'd like you to unpack that for our audience. I think that might be one of the more meaningful things that you could message everyone today. Okay. I mean, you use the term, uh, you know, uh, cause and effect or cause. Another way you might describe it, if I understand your question, is stimulus response. You know, there's a stimulus that could act as a cause for a particular response. Uh, In in the book, I, I use the example of an insult. And so let's say that, uh, you know, somebody's mad, and you ask the person, well, why are you mad? Well, the reason, you know, what what made you mad? What caused you to be mad? Well, so-and-so insulted me, and now I'm mad. And that's common sense psychology. Everybody could easily understand that kind of thinking. And uh, but but there's I think there's a kind of a dark side to that kind of thinking. Uh, That that means that there are you know things that occur in the world that have predictable emotional psychological outcomes. I can't control the things in the outside world, uh, and so I'm going to be a victim of that outside world that I cannot control. And oh my God. Uh, but in higher reality therapy, I use the example of two people receiving the same insult or being on the, you know, on the receiving end of that insult. One person is upset and the other person is not upset. If I value the opinion of the person you know, delivering the insult, uh, I may be moved in a negative fashion. But, but if, if I don't value their opinion, if I don't, you know, it just doesn't matter to me what they say, then I'm left untouched. So whether I'm going to be affected by that causal factor, by that stimulus, by that insult, all of that hinges on the value judgment that I'm going to place on that external stimulus. And that value judgment is entirely within my control, and I can, ch- and I can judge differently. I can choose to judge differently, and when I choose to judge differently, the impact, the result, the consequence of that causal stimulus will be different. But all of that is in my control. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a, an example. I hope I, I've given you the kind of answer you're looking for. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, you know, most people are in 5 o'clock traffic. I think you give an example of this kind, too. They get cut off, and they lose their temper, or they experience some road rage, they're on their horn, and so on and so forth, and they expect everybody to understand that that's normal and ordinary, of course, because, look, that was done to me. And I think one of the things that you point out is that by taking that attitude, you give up your freedom. Yes. And that's the most important message that I think our audience should understand. You you know, what you're giving up is more important than how you're reacting because, as you say, you you, you haven't just become the victim. You've given up your freedom. And that's something I've spent a great deal of time myself um, trying to communicate. Let's go to this. And and I've got questions pouring into the chat room, and, you know, we're just going to have to bring you back. That's all there is because (laughs) we haven't got to the meat of your book. We've been out here on the periphery. Yeah. Real well, meat has well, to do. 
Go ahead. This is the this is the problem talking with me. I'm so long winded I can never get no, to the point. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's not the problem. That's that's the glory, the beauty. I love it. I mean, if it were a problem, I wouldn't be saying I'm going to bring you back. Uh, the meat of the book is really about personality type, shall we say, the, the Enneagram. And, you know, if I look at, well, I, I guess, let me, I'll contrast one, for example. Type one, uh, in, the, in the classical sense, is the reformer whose eagle fixation is resentment, his holy idea of perfection, basic fear, corruptness, imbalances, being bad, basic desire, goodness, integrity, balance, temptation, basic temptation, hypocrisy, hypercriticism, the voice or passion, anger, virtue, serenity. You, you and, and I could go on, but I'll stop right there. You now would take type one. And type one for you uh, changes um, your type one. Well, you make the comparison and tell us how or why we could use this for self-improvement. Well, you talked about, you know, the stimulus response model is sort of infringing on, you know, your freedom. Right. I, I, I think what happens is, is if you are... If you are a person of strong personality, and your personality is obvious, you might even take some pride in the fact that you are an individual of strong personality. What you may not appreciate is that strong uh, personality uh, does have a shadow side. I mean, there, there are certain features that might be positive, uh, and, the, and, and your strong personality limits you in many ways. And in fact, one who is, let's say, most enlightened is, is one who is most liberated and most difficult to type. Um, and if your type is obvious, <laughs> that's not a good thing. Uh, and, you know, and there are people who study personality types and they like to learn about their type and they like to uh, dwell on their type and kind of narcissistically bathe in all the details of their type. Uh, but no, you're, you're supposed to, you know, once you know what your type is, there, there's, there's some spiritual work that needs to be done to liberate yourself from the confines, from the prison of that type. Um, so, uh, you know, liberation is, is really what you want, and, and there are sort of different ways and different paths. And, and what, what a, a type one, a reformer, should do in terms of their own sort of uh, journey to, you know, you know, uh, spiritual development uh, may be very different from you know what a, a type six or a type eight has to do. There, there are there are different. I'd say there are different passions. There are different. Uh, there are different shadow issues. There are different vices that everybody has. And so, uh, while you know the, the personality uh, personalities differ, and there there are let's say different things we all need to do. In the end, we want to not entirely escape the ego personality, but to take control over it, because without self-awareness, it has taken control over us. For and Let me give you like a personal example. I'm actually a five, not a one. I'm a, I'm a five, and that's a thinking type. The and, investigator. Uh, uh, the, yeah, the investigator. 
And uh, for the longest time, you know, I always thought, I don't, I don't really understand, you know, people that they, you know, they're not rational, you know, they're kind of feeling types, or, or some people, uh, you know, they don't even think or feel they kind of have gut level instincts. What's wrong with those people? And I remember glorifying uh, the value of reason, and it's easy to do that as a philosopher in a critical thinking class. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then when it, you know when I learned about the Enneagram, I, no, well, no wonder I, <laughs> I'm committed, uh, or why I think reason is so important. Uh, it, it it you know it's a reflection, it's a projection of my type, uh, and so of course I I see and I believe what I project. But there are other different ways of seeing the world, different worldviews. Each has its own internal logic. Each has its own legitimacy. Each has its own uh, uh, way of, you know, constructing reality, and uh, mine is not the only way, you know, wh- which makes me, which makes me think of a, I think it's a Jane uh, poem, uh, or about the six men of Indostan, where you have these blind men all holding on to, you know, uh, the elephant at different places on the elephant. Right. So one's holding on to the ear, one's holding on to the tail, and and they're asked, do you know what an elephant is? Oh, I can tell you what an elephant is. An elephant's like a snake, or it's like a rope, or it's like a fan, or it's like a, it's like a tree trunk. And the point was, they were all partly in the right, but in the end, they were all wrong. And so for me, uh, Enneagram psychology can tell me, well, from the five's perspective, <laughs> I'm partly in the right when it comes to, you know, rationality, etc., uh, and, you know, just being this the observant thinking person who's withdrawn at a distance trying to be objective. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, uh, but th- there are other ways of being in the world. And I'm just one of those blind men on the elephant thinking I've got the whole story w- when I don't. Uh, and there are, you know, there are eight other perspectives. And so I, I find it useful to learn about all these other types, uh, there's, uh, what's the saying in French? Uh, uh, well, I don't know in French and English, uh, it would be to understand all is to forgive all. And so what I find extremely useful with the Enneagram is in my study of personality types and in, in my own self-exploration, I come to understand why I do the things that I do, and I'm not always happy to find the answer. <laughs> Or, you know, find to discover what I do, discover. And uh, when I learn about others, I, I find it easier. Well, now I understand why so-and-so is doing whatever, and I can treat them differently. I can see them differently now, and uh, and I'm not so annoyed or bothered by them. So th- this understanding of ego frees me from myself, and it frees me from a lot of negative emotions I might otherwise have toward others who previously might have been seen as annoying <laughs> Or irritating for whatever reasons. So it, it, it's a it's a it's a vehicle to become much more accepting, much more forgiving, uh, much more understanding. Um, and not only that, but it's uh, you know uh, it's, it's just fun. Well, and and for all of you out there, uh, the book contains uh, what the professor refers to as the nine pathways. Uh, or you can think of it as the nine types, and each one of them um, is fleshed out with all of the different characteristics that you heard me give with the first one, uh, and 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 some and more. And uh, 
the mechanisms that you might use to compensate and uh, how, you know, you, you might find the self-destructive aspects of yourself working. They're present in this book together with the ways that you can escape those things. I found several myself that I was, you know, yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. That describes, uh, that gives me some insight into my own um what shall we say, misbehavior, uh, conduct at some time. Uh, one more real quick question on this, and I've got to go to the chat room, uh, Professor. The Enneagram personality theorists uh, essentially use uh, a figure, an Enneagram figure. Uh, uh, do you use this figure yourself? Do you see the overlap uh, of one type relating to a 9 and a 2 as a case in point? Well, uh, you know, when I first saw the, the Enneagram figure, it, it almost looked satanic to me, you know, and it was, it, you know, it's troubling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, there, there's this, uh, so if you can picture a circle for your listeners, a circle, and then there's an inner triangle that sort of is in the middle of the circle, and then there's, uh, what, a six, uh, six-pointed other figure. So it's hard to explain uh, over, over uh, you know, the telephone or on the radio here. Um, but in any event, I, I do sometimes make uh, make use of that figure. Uh, for instance, at uh, different uh, points on the figure, two, three, and four, they represent feeling types. Five, six, and seven thinking types. Eight, nine, and one uh, instinctive type. So it's useful that way. And and within the Enneagram community, there's there's some um, controversy about whether there are so-called paths of integration or disintegration, which would involve growth paths. Or paths that we might take when you know under severe stress, and in that, like for example, uh, a, a type eight who's a very kind of aggressive individual uh, um, likes to be the boss. You know, just if I can caricature the eight for a moment, uh, their growth path might be to go to the two. And this figure uh, shows how an eight goes to two and how that's a growth path. And and for the two who would go to eight, this is the two's the helper. You know, is the is the self-sacrificing mother, for instance, who would then get very angry <laughs> because no one shows appreciation. And so the two goes to eight, you know, going back the other way on the path to disintegration. So it, it, it has a certain uh, uh, heuristic explanatory value to it. And so, yes, sometimes, uh, sometimes I do use it. All right. Again, you know, I'm going to suggest to all of you, if you... Uh, if you're on the path of how high is up, you know, self, self-improvement, self if you really want to, you know, find, if you don't walk on water yet, let me say it that way. This is a great <laughs> read, okay? Let's let's go to the chat room now. I, I Give them a chance, okay? Mud Girl says she wants to know your take. Well, wait a minute. She's her. I'm just going to read this exactly verbatim. I won't attempt to adjust it, and then we'll figure it out. His take on moral relativism or being disengaged from the harsh realities is interesting. It makes me think, if we are to pursue these things from a vantage point of love, then are there times when we should apply the concept of tough love to them? Using tough love might be telling people to wake up and get out of their bubbles. What do you say? Well, uh, you know, to be honest, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. When it when it comes to moral relativism, I don't to begin there. 
Uh, I often in, in my ethics classes talk to students, some of whom are religious, some of whom aren't, you know, uh, some of whom uh, think they're relativists, and, you know, and, and I'll give an example. Well, could I stick a bayonet through the heart of an innocent child? Would that be okay with you? I asked the relativist, no, that, that wouldn't be okay, and so why is that? Yeah, well, you know, life has value. And, and so anyway, through the process of discussion, what we come up with is the fact that, you know, on, it is possible to come up with an agreement, so to speak, a rational agreement of what things uh, there will be that we value. Life could be one. Fairness could be another. Uh, justice, you know, something like that. So we could, you know, come up with a list. And so by kind of some sort of social, moral, ethical contract, we decide these will be the principles that we... I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to stop you. I want everybody to know how they can reach you. We have 30 seconds. Please tell them how, where to get your book and how they can reach you. Well, uh, my book is uh, available on uh, Amazon.com. Uh, if you're in the States, Amazon.ca. Uh, can also uh, be uh, be purchased uh, at O Books uh, in Washington and uh, uh, in the UK. Uh, I guess you could order through your bookstore or online, and that's up to you. Um, and uh, to get a hold of me, I'm I'm on sabbatical this year. I do check my email, <laughs> my email, and if you go to my my course website, uh, there'll be an address there that you could just click on. It's a hot link, and, and you could email me if that's what you wanted to do. All right. Well, we're out of time. We're going to bring the man back. So I know everybody loved you. You know, until next time, wherever you are in the world, I want you to remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.